Hello, everyone. Hey. Good morning. Good morning. Hi there. Alex, it's a delight to be with you on the phone for Diane and I. And our topic this morning is uh, unique self and, you know, the life and work of, of Alex Gray. And Alex Gray has unique self. And so maybe I'll just kind of open with just a little frame of, you know, where we are and how we got to unique self and how Diane and myself and Ken are kind of playing in this unique self and then go right into and turn it over to you, Alex, and Diane will just kind of, you know, chat in open forum and, and let the mysteries unfold. You know, perfect. The, Thank you. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. So the idea that we're playing with, if I could just kind of maybe frame it even in terms of sacred mirrors, Alex, which Dan and I have been looking at, which is just so completely, you know, gorgeous, and maybe just even before we get to Unique Self, just as an opening, you know, when, when I look at art, and Diane understands art, you know, and appreciates it in this really deep way, and she's taught me a lot about it. And, but just in my raw place, when I look at art, you know, my own kind of personal litmus test is, you know, does it open my heart? Does it just, like, expand? And I, looked at, I was looking at your stuff yesterday, Alex, on the plane, and I looked at it, you know, three, four years ago, and I'll, I'll talk about how I actually came across it, but I'm on the plane yesterday, and it just blew my heart open. You know, it just blew my heart open, and I was particularly looking at a, uh, two pictures, one called Kissing, which I think you did in like 1983, which just like, ah, uh, just like, and I want to come back and talk about that painting. And just, just, to, just to everybody listening, I just want to recommend, you know, of everything, and Alex may not think this is right, but for me, as a, as a viewer and appreciator and a lover, you know, Sacred Mirrors, The Visionary Art of Alex Gray, with two essays by Ken Wilbur and Carlo McCormick is just this stunningly beautiful, gorgeous, heart-opening, and, you know, I know that no one listening here does anything like alternative substances, but if you would and couldn't afford it that week, I'm telling you Sacred Mirrors is the way to go. Right, so, so thank you so, so much. I just to really start there. So in Sacred Mirrors, there's a, a couple of series at the end. One's called The Journey of the Wounded Healer, and then there's a second there's a second one, which is called Holy Fire. And in those, there's a, you know, clearly three levels of consciousness. There's a very clear delineation. And in the middle level of consciousness, in each one of them, you have different versions of, you know, an ego death experience, a complete, you know, dissolution and entering into, you know, the first stage of the negativa void. You know, it's, it's nervi culpa samadhi. It's complete everything. Everything is dissolved. In many, many great traditions, that really is the goal. And certainly that's the way they're taught in a lot of places in Theravadan Buddhism. So no self, right, seems to, you know, primary, the deconstruction of the reified self. In certain versions of Kabbalah, you just want to leave the ani, the I, and enter into the ayin, the place of complete dissolution. And yet, as one goes deeper, you know, one feels into it. And in my particular tradition of Kabbalah, and I spend 15, 20 years with one lineage master, who's my lineage master, who plays with what happens after the dissolution. How do you emerge? And what he really plays with in, you know, in many, many series of texts, Aramaic and Hebrew, you know, emerging from the Zohar, is this notion that, and you can just feel it in your body, that the void, the void is a place you need to go through, but you have to be very careful not to get stuck there. Right? That actually, as you emerge from the spaciousness, and you leave behind the specialness of the egoic level, and you disambiguate you know, all of the personalness 
that we thought was there when we realized the kind of the vast cosmic, you know, impersonal gorgeousness. We merge from that and we re-engage the personal. You know, personal plus, not personal minus. We emerge and we re-engage our infinite specialness, but not our specialness at the egoic level, but the specialness at the level of what Diane and Ken and I have called, you know, the unique self, where I'm coming not from that egoic place, but I'm coming from myself as a gorgeous, unique, infinitely special manifestation face of the divine that's irreplaceable in all in time and history, that's uniquely particularly called at this particular moment in time, and its action is infinitely significant. And that's what we're really dedicating. It's to that we're dedicating the first, like, international, you know, large, integral, spiritual gathering of practice for, for hundreds and hundreds of people in Asilomar. And we could just think of no way better to have a conversation with you, you know, and, and your figures of art and, and their uniqueness, you know, clearly plays, you know, such a role. And so just to, to start, you know, our dialogue in Sacred Mirrors, there's a, a wonderful, wonderful page right before the praying picture in the, I think the third part of the book called Progress of the Soul. And Alex Gray writes, or Alex and Allison write together, right? The soul incarnates to perform certain tasks and to learn certain lessons. Everyone has a soul purpose in life and unique gifts to fulfill that purpose. The reality of a soul purpose is sometimes clear, the transformative experiences of life, such as love, work, and family relationships. And you go on to talk about what that means as the introduction. And that's, of course, that's unique self. And so just to start there, you know, and just to open it up and just to, to ask maybe to share with us just a little bit of how you were called here, how you came to incarnate this particular gorgeous visionary art of Alex Gray as Alex Gray, and how that unique self of you plays and dances with the art just as a place to begin and enter. What a wonderful question. And a, I can feel the, the thorny problems of, of trying to answer it as well, because the, as far as I can understand these things, there's a level of listening for the call of your sort of life's mission. Now, you could say it's a pure invention and that uh, you've got an empty blank canvas for your life, and uh, by golly, whatever you want to create there, you know, it's open to you. Everyone has certain talents or certain proclivities. But the unique call to honor that there is perhaps a unique call for a unique self. For me, that's, I guess, been a matter of receptivity uh, to hearing it. And uh, it's, you know, creative expression we think of as uh, this, this full um, outward manifestation, the creative flow, the divine flow. Um, but I, I think that the... Uh, what makes the unique self unique is uh, the attunement and the listening, uh, the, <laughs> the antenna, the receptors mm. that are deepened uh, to one level or another through whatever preparation, and uh, sometimes through no preparation. Some people, like Mozart, you know, they're born genius types, and uh, they they practically pop out of the womb 
with these, uh, you know, overwhelming genius talents. You, know, you have a monster like Ken Wilber, or you have the, <laughs> the, uh, you know, I mean, uh, they're titanic uh, personalities, and uh, that, you know, we value them as unique individuals, but they are, they seem to actually be just plugged in in a really powerful way and plugged in is to the something uh, that you know I mean I like to play with words too I've been playing with the word God self because mm. that's like the fusion of those uh, opposites you know you had the, the avatars and the uh, the different people who were extremely plugged in and tapped into uh, the Godhead, you know, and obviously no one's adequate to the task, but at least uh, you can gain a certain currency from it. And uh, so, you know, I mean, I mean we, we know about Beethoven, we love Beethoven, and Beethoven, you know, knew how uh, important he was as an artist. He had respect for his unique self. And I think that most people who have been given a talent or a gift or, or something, if they survive um, long enough and don't right. kill themselves, exactly. uh, then uh, maybe they gain some ability to negotiate both the, the gift, the burden, the, you know, the task that one is given. And it's really that you know, that we respect and respond to. Of course, mm -hmm. you know, uh, we love the people because of their warmth and because of the various, various human and wonderful qualities, but the, the reason that we go to them, you know, I mean, an entire section of my brain would be missing if Beethoven never lived. No, oh my God. And uh, if, if Ken had not come along, you know, our integral maps would be, you know, where would they be, you know? And so people do come uh, to the, uh, that seem to be dropped into life. You know, it's like, uh, looks like the monkeys really need some help. Uh, you know, shoot them one of these, you know. <laughs> Are you ready? You know, you know. Uh, troops, you know, and then uh, and then they get injected into the, human life stream and if they make it you know uh to a certain degree of consciousness then they can be of tremendous influence to uh steering the wheel of of human evolution or or at least the the uh, uh navigating the tides of civilizational uh, shift you know and i obviously that's where we're at right now and the uh, the uh, uh seismic shifts of uh uh, civilization, you know, self-destructing and emerging. You know, that's that's that. Which and bef but before we let you get to seismic shifts, you said so much that was so important. So I want to just kind of like just stay with you for a second before we 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 move in and invite it out into Diane. And and so I want to kind of talk on that level for a second, and and maybe turn it over to you to D to just emerge out of what the framework that Alex you know laid for us, mm -hmm. which is in coming Alex out of sacred mirrors. What's actually fascinating, having received and really taken as the ground of our conversation, you know, everything you so beautifully said, is that in Sacred Mirrors, of course, you're not depicting Beethoven. 
right? In other words, you're depicting just the person. You're depicting every man, right? I mean, you, you have in different series, you have different perspectives, a Caucasian, Asian, right, an Afro-American. You know, you have different moments, you know, family, nursing, you know, and that family picture, by the way, oh, my God, right? Everyone has to see that. You know, just every, everyone listening has to get sacred mirrors. That's like a given, right? That's like you can't, you can't listen to this and not get sacred mirrors. So let's take this now into the next step, which is the unique self of every man, mm-hmm. of every woman. Indeed, yeah. how would you know? How would you just like just just give us an introduction, take us into that a little bit, that kind of the, that next step? Well, a lot of my paintings attempt to point out the universal aspects of our journey as you know humans, and so the that's why the whole translucency element uh, mm. has right. been important. For me, I, you know, even though you could say maybe it looks more like a Caucasian than a than right. an Asian or something, you know, it, at least there's not the stopping of the pigment of the skin necessarily that would cue you that this is a unique racial type and maybe this painting is only about, you know, the whites, the blacks, the Asians, the, the you know, the red man, whatever. I, I wanted to take it off as much of the gender, race, to remove many of the uh, unique aspects and get to the one thing that as human beings we do share. you got a nervous system there. You're probably walking around with some bones. Um, and the, the color of the skin, that very few genetic uh, kind of uh, signals and stuff that set something like that up compared to the tonnage of the iceberg that's underneath that surface, you know, of similarity, you know, I'm trying to point to that similarity. And then once you get to stripping away the the skin, which at the same time you want to honor it, like in sacred mirrors. So it's saying, okay, we do have skin and it's amazing. It's wonderful. And there is cultural bias that comes with that. Right. You know, you're, uh, but, but that's all kind of like pseudo-uniqueness. But underneath that, there's a universal before unique self that you need to go through. Exactly. It's like, okay, we've got the skeleton. We've got the material world. We've got these various aspects. You know, you've been given a, a black box of a body, you know. Uh, you don't know much of what's in there. Well, maybe you do. But uh, <laughs> the average person doesn't, you know. And not until they break a bone or something are they going to care that much about their skeleton. But uh, it's, a, it's a miracle of evolution. And to confront it in the painting series, The Sacred Mirrors, it, that's just my way of honoring the, uh, the gift of the body. You know, one one uh, Sufi friend said, physiology is theology. Mm. Mm. Understood in a... <laughs> In the right way, it is, of course. So, so let's know that's that's gorgeous. So let's let's take it from there, Diane, and, and you're gonna you're gonna dance a sense of physiology. It's theology, says Alex, and 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 so so there's really two stages. One stage is I've got my kind of pseudo story, which is which which is very important. I need to honor. It's my personality. It's my body. I then need to explode 
as in the Wounded Healer series of pictures and to kind of move to that. And in all Alexir images, you kind of move underneath that to that which kind of is common in there and deep in us. And then, you know, biography is also theology. You know, sacred autobiography is also theology. And it's the uniqueness of the Beethovens and of the simple people. And just at that place, Diane, just, just dance us in here. You know, the uniqueness of the simple people or wherever you want to take us. Okay, well, when I, when I hear physiology is theology, I also hear four quadrants, you know, that skin arises in four quadrants. It's not simply an upper right. It also is in culture. It has meaning. And, and you know, that's where we talk about the integral map having helping us all, you know, like expand. So what I, I think also um, one of the things that, that I am really moved by when I think about this call and what it is we're, we're actually doing with this inquiry, Alex, um, is that you're a person, because you're an artist, you're a person who, and I'll come back to, to your interest, Mark, and tie it in, but you're a person who your path is explicated for people. You know, so you have a very powerful internal experience, and then you move from the interior into the exterior through the visual, through, through how you enact your experience, and you sort of demonstrate for us that, for me at least, you're like a model of, of what it's like to inhabit a unique path. And the, when we go into a, you know, into the traditions which we've both practiced in, and I've practiced, I think you practice in the Buddhist tradition, the emphasis, as Mark was saying, on no self, and really, um, you know, like learning how to really, really deeply recognize and identify with, with that which is beyond this kind of small clinging impulse that we have, and and yet at the same time, every one of us is walking an utterly unique process, even through the traditions. So I think for me, like in looking at your work and how you grapple with, how, how you so, particularly when you were young, grappled with incarnation, like really directly with the body, with what, what's in the morgue, with corpses, with... With, with the rotting dog by the river. Yeah, just all that stuff. Like, <laughs> let's, let's, like not, you, let's not forget the rotting dog by the river. <laughs> the rotting dog by the river, but... And I have a whole other thing, my interest around your shamanic understanding of that, but just as a place to start... First of all, the affirmation of that what's in your interior actually does represent something about your path. And then how do you, as an artist, how have you learned to differentiate what the traditions would refer to as egoic, somehow limiting you, not allowing you to expand, you know, moving more into transcendental space, which is so beautifully illustrated and, and really provides its own type of map for those of us who want to move towards that experience. And then, and, and what is unique? Like, how do you make those discriminations in your work? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense to you what I'm asking? Like, ego, no self, unique self as an artist. Right. Your path is completely unique, and yet you're probably making some discriminations around what you throw out and what you pursue. Uh, very true. You know, I was born thinking that I was an artist mm-hmm. and just never gave it up basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people might be born with that uh, sense, mm-hmm. you know, that they're an artist. And most people uh, make art as their kids. And uh, so as the kernel of that identity sort of moved forward and in the small, you know, carried like a football from my, uh, or a relay race of this identity of the self, you know, from the small self, you're going to run to the no self, you know, run into the uh, the slaughterhouse right. there, 
and on the, add, way. Uh, on the way. Yeah, on the way. Yeah. Yeah. The rotating knives, uh, and then right. and then you're maybe there pops out a something that is you know not just needy, but something that is a uh, a kernel of service that will you know bring light to the world. So the ego is holding that light too, obviously, and that's what is uh, drawing it, you know, forward, propelling it. I think that the one of the things that I have always admired about the identity as artist is it's very flexible, it's very malleable. Right. It's all of, absolutely. It's all about the creative force. Yep. We can see. We can from the archetypes that have emerged through our, even just our culture and even just over the last hundred years or something, what is the image or identity or archetype of the artist or creative person? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's gone through these you know, romantic notions and fueled by the youthful suicides of, of many artists and poets and, you know, and and there's the decadent uh, element to it. There's the, the poser. Tortured, the tortured side. Right. There's the tortured artist in a garret. There's the charlatan. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a big one in our culture is, is right. how the art gets away with stuff. Yeah. And, and the huckster artist. Yeah. The huckster artist. Yeah. So there's there's all these archetypes. And yet, you know, the previous archetype of the artist was something like a craftsman uh, dedicated to a holy path you know, right. in the sacred arts. You know, they knew how to work with stuff, so they weren't just sitting on a cushion, but they're probably dedicated and devoted, the best ones, to right. a god or a no-self or a, you know, some understanding either understanding or uh, devotion to a higher force. And all the sacred arts depend on that kind of devotional energy. Mm-hmm. The craft then is uh, locked in, and the discipline and the rigor is locked in to the technical expertise that an artist develops mm-hmm. as part of their craft as a service to, to God or to this higher force or to the Buddha mind, or, you know, it's a devotional service. Yeah, and let me, let, let, let me, let, let me let just hold it out for my listeners for just a minute, just in terms of talking about unique path and maybe when we look along the artistic line, and it's true, I think, across all of them, and it's that, that technical development is actually really part of it, that, you know, we, we develop these capacities out of out of a vision and intention in the upper left, but it actually has to be realized in in our technical abilities in the upper right, so to right. speak. And Go ahead, Mark. So that that's a critical thing to pull out, and thank you. And I just want to just really kind of try and kind of step in here into the inside of the inside because so much has been said here. So first, I want to say to whoever's out there, kind of hearing about Diane's skin in all four quadrants, write a doctorate on that and remember to quote <laughs> Diane. You know, second, before we kind of bring it together, you know, Alex, I just want to kind of and I'm I'm not going to toss it back to you yet because I want to get to the second thing you said afterwards, but I I can't resist and I want to just reflect it back to everyone. You know, intuitively, Alex just kind of brought out one of the great litmus tests and unique self, you know, and it took me, you know, a, you know, a few hundred pages, you know, sitting in the library in Oxford writing about this. And, 
you know, he did it without footnotes in six, six words, which is, you know, as you merge out of the fire of no-self and those revolving knives and you're kind of cut up in the slaughterhouse, when you emerge out, if you do, you know, maybe, you know, the quote was, there's a kernel of service. You feel a kernel of service that brings light to the world. Right, that that the, when the unique self emerges, right, it's the kernel of service that brings light to the world. Quoting, talking about you in third person, Alex Gray, which is how you know you've kind of, you've stumbled into, you've fallen into, you've graced into your unique self, which is a whole, and we'll, we'll come back to that. But I want to, before we do that, I want to bring together your inquiry and Alex's answer and maybe invite us to kind of step back into it, which is, D, you asked about the distinction between what we call unique self and all the egoic stuff along the way, and how is that a unique path right, of an artist and, and, and Alex in your path. And Alex, you brought forth a whole wealth of you know, treasured archetype sacred, and among them were two phrases. You know, one was you talked about really the sacred artist. And the sacred artist I want to talk later about, about um, you know, art as spiritual practice with Alex. You talk about in your last chapter in your book, The Mission of Art, and I think you know, the late 90s you wrote, where I think Ken wrote a forward. But before that, just the image of the sacred artist. You know, so that sacred artist, you know, the, one of the first art types we have, and we have it in, in all the great traditions in the perennial philosophy, but one of them that has kind of, you know, whispered in my ear for years, right, is, of course, Betzalel. You know, and Betzalel, right, is the, the sacred artisan of the tabernacle, you know, of the mystical Solomon's temple. And he's the kind of, you know, archetype in that Hebrew mystical tradition of, of the sacred artist, and he engages in the second phrase, you know, the, the act of devotion, Alex, that you talked about. But that brings us back to Diane, which is, <laughs> Betzalo means... Does it? Betzalo, it does. You'll see why in a second. Here okay. we come. Okay. Right. Right. So Betzalo is, in Hebrew, Betzel El. He's in the shadow. He's in the shadow of God, and it's, and it's in the shadow that he finds God. So in this image of the artist in the original Hebrew, Betzal is the one who enters the shadow and is able to transmute the shadow in some way that he actually survives. He doesn't die young. And it's the people that get lost, and all of us get lost, and some of us dies in the shadow. But, you know, Alex, there was some way that you were able to find your way through. There was some way that you were able to kind of, you know, discern and not, not, you know, we didn't lose you, thank God, praise, you know, along the way. Yeah, and what, what is, you, weren't, you didn't get stuck in a back eddy of nihilism or, or a back eddy of commercialism or you kept moving, it seems like. So what, what is that, what is that, that the artist and, and the artist as, as every man and, and as every woman, you know, the artist and, 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 you know, the canvas of self-creation, you know, being the great art of our lives and, and, and our sacred autobiographies being the great tapestry and unfolding of, of the unique artwork, which is our manifestation and expression in the world. How do we wrestle? What's the, tell us something about, about that path of, of moving through the shadow and not getting stuck in that, in that slaughterhouse. And, and what are the moments there or, or any place that, that you might want to take us here, Alex? Thank you for bringing me back there. But the, for me, it's easy to say, you know. And even though there were a few sputtering moments and uh, there was a very discernible turning point in my life. Anybody who knows my work or has dug a little into it may uh, remember that I met my wife back in 1975. And, mm. and that was a turning point in my life. It was also the same night that I took LSD for the first time. 
Mm. That's that's, that, that's when you both had that experience that I read about well, in a. Uh, not actually. The, no, no, okay. It was very strange. Uh, it happened in May of 1975. Uh, it was the end of art school. I had gone through a number of uh, tortured kinds of expressions of my uh, unfolding self, and uh, I was probably stuck in a negative loop of... Um, a kind of nihilism slash agnosticism slash existentialism slash God, I wish that you were out there. Really, it would make things life a lot uh, mm. more uh, meaningful here. And so, a more the last day of school after I had spent all my money going up to the North Magnetic Pole, and I had done a number of things all. Year, that year about polarities and exploring polarities because that's what life seemed made up of was just opposites. I was totally stuck in my mind and duality, but it was interesting, you know, that I that I I went there, and uh, so that morning I woke up particularly bleak and desperate and just was you know read contemplating suicide as many young twenty year olds do. And had a kind of a challenging prayer out to, you know, the forces that be that God, if you're out there, I, you know, I truly wish you'd show up, you know, and it wasn't a, it wasn't really a, uh, it was kind of a hopeless hope, you know, mm. and uh, just plopped into the, uh, the newosphere, I suppose, which I was unconscious of, but it was a definite plea. And after the day spent at school was fairly uneventful. I was saying goodbye to this professor that I'd been working with on the street corner for all of three to five minutes, just saying goodbye. A girl drives by in a car and invites us to her party later that evening. And mm. uh, that's Allison, you know. Wow. And so this professor picks me up that evening and hands me a bottle of Kahlua and LSD which I drink about <laughs> half, drink about half of it. What the heck, you know? And uh, get to the door, and the girl drinks the other half, Allison, you know. Uh -huh. And uh, so I sit down on a couch, and I, and I am going through a tunnel in my head after about an hour. Mm. And it, I've never had another LSD trip like this at all. It was mm. one archetypal image throughout the entire trip. Not, mm -hmm. It never happened to me, and I, I've rarely heard it described from other people either. But as, when I closed my eyes, I was in a vast tunnel. Now, we've heard of the tunnel when you die and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. But this one was not a straight-ahead tunnel. It was like a spiralic tunnel, like right. you were mm -hmm. in, inside of a conch shell or something. And, but it was, and it was kind of a living, breathing mother-of-pearl in it, but I was mm. in the dark. I was mm. in the dark, but I was flowing toward this light. And this mm. light was so numinous and so, so, so much like life itself and love and happiness and everything. So, but I was in the dark, but I was going toward the light. And it was a kind of a spiralic tunnel. And I, it was so blissful uh, and ecstatic that I... Now I saw all these polarities, 
I was in the dark, but going toward the light, and the and and I could see every shade of gray uh, that was moving from this darkness that I was in toward this infinite, you know, numinosity and luminosity. And then I got it, you know, it's like, oh, gray brings the opposites together. Oh, gee, you know, and so then, like, some, some <laughs> nice. I, I, I changed my name on account of that experience. Oh. Uh, and uh, so in a way, that was a birth, birthing of a unique mm. uh, self right there, a realization of a way you're going. You're not just an artist. No, you're on a sacred path. You may be in the dark now, but you're going toward the light. So mm. my path was in a, you know, walking papers or, or, or remembering my soul's task came bang at, at that absolute, you know, it's, could God make it more, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you get hit with one of these cartoon mallets or something, you know, and then the oh stars you know, are going around your head, you know, do you get it? Do you get it yet? You know, you know, and so it's a turning point, son. You know, it's a turning so, point, son. Exactly. Turn. Yeah. So then Allison and the same, you know, as soon as I had this mystical experience, oh, there is a light that is beyond, you know, the, you know, everything. And it is the light of spirit. I called up Allison the next day. I said, I, I had this amazing experience. And could I get together with you? You had, the, you know, some whatever experience. You, you, had, had, you had the other half of my Kahlua. <laughs> you drank the other half of my Kahlua. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and so she was the... Uh, she was divine love in the flesh. We never left mm -hmm. each other since. It's been 34 years, you know. Wow. Oh, my God. So, I mean, on, 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 that, on that, you know, kind of gorgeous note, I just have to say to the listeners that we can't recommend Kahlua and LSD in 2009. It's kind of risky to do that as your unique self-path. We're not going to be doing that at Integral Spiritual Experience. But we can. We can just invite you to the, the other expression that, Alex, you just talked about, which is deep in the the mystical traditions, which is the changing of a name, hmm. you know, the changing of a name. You know, there's this old text and, you know, third century Aramaic text that says we're born with three names and the name our parents give us you know, the name that our friends give us, which are each parts of our kind of karma and personality, but that we actually choose our third name is our true name, which is the name that we choose, which is, which, which is really unique self. Hmm. Wow. And, and that, you know, that kind of, you know, changing of a name is, is really one of the, the things that kind of hold the unique self-experience. So, so as, as we move forward, you know, as we move towards the last section of our dialogue, I want to turn to you and to Diane. Maybe, Dan, you can set a, set a frame for us. You know, when we talk about unique self, one of its expressions is one of the ways we dance in love. You know, we're used to thinking about love as an emotion. And a, a love, love is, of course, a powerful and, and gorgeous emotion. But in, in the deep lineage tradition, you know, both in, in Sufism, you know, and, you know, Hafez and Rumi kind of play with it. You know, you know, Hafez, you know, I wish that I could show you when you are lonely or in darkness the, the astonishing light of your own unique being, you know, which is a kind of self-love. And in the, the Kabbalists, you know, my, my lineage masters talk about love as a perception, right? The emotion emerges from the perception, but that love at its core is a perception of the true nature of reality. So in, in loving other, it's to perceive and delight. And, and Alex, I don't, I don't want Allison to get jealous, but I have to say that I fell in love with you yesterday on the plane. 
when I was I'm sitting there shaking mirrors, I was like, oh my, just my heart, oh my God. You know, I just like when it's it was just just this complete falling in love as you as you witness the manifestation of, of the unique self of other. There's no sense of like jealousy. Like there's not like I wasn't on the plane saying, oh, my God, why didn't I paint these things? No, when you're actually loving, you're just so you're so delighted. You know, there's that deep perception. And of course, in that place, the artist and D, I know that you were both married to a great artist, Tony Smith, for many, many years. And, and you've spent a lot of time and. You know, you've actually exposed me to the art world in the last three years, although you were frustrated at my slow learning and understanding, but we'll work with that later. Right? You know, <laughs> art of teach Mark just to use use his eyes, to look look through his eyes, yeah. Right, right, right. So that so that's what love is. Love is to see with God's eyes. Mm-hmm. Right? Love is to see with God's eyes. It, it's that perception. And the artist mm-hmm. in some deep way holds for society those eyes. Right? The artist holds the lover's eyes, holds that perception. So maybe you just lead us in, if we can just kind of dance with this love as, as perception and, and art as kind of holding, you know, the shamanic eyes of the culture, you know, mm-hmm. both in the kind of transmuting, you know, the mm-hmm. dissolution and transmuting, and having the eyes to see. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly agree with the layout of really what is happening in the arts. And because God is one, uh, every flavor of unique self should not be foreign to us. Mm-hmm. We recognize all the cynicism and all the the sort of the negative expressions as important shadow material to mm-hmm. integrate mm-hmm. in the cultural trajectory. You know, it's frequently from uh, repression of shadow material that we see how spiritual communities fail and fall. And yet an obsession with the shadow sort of saps the higher possibilities that a, that a culture can aspire to. And these elements are tragically missing in much contemporary art and contemporary culture and we're still in the backwash of a sort of very reductionist and materialist kind of culture and the the elements of capitalism which are well expressed in uh, many modes of art pop art is is so adequate to the expression of the uh, hollow and sort of empty core of this, uh, and, and tragically and existentially, you know, it it it's adequate to that, you know, mm-hmm. but it but it misses this soul element, which uh, I I think we're in the process of recovering. I think that you can even look at American archetypes like Emerson. Mm-hmm. And the transcendentalists who were early on integrators of the Eastern past, now we have a confluence of all the religions and all the spiritual past, mm-hmm. including the, you know, you know, the shamanic and the entheogenic and all of these right. things. It's all, it's all coming together in a world spirituality. Exactly. Well, if, if we look at it, um, if, we, if we use structures of consciousness and levels of development one of the things that i i'm going to just tie in perception love is a perception one of the things i appreciate you 
and would reflect back to you, Alex, is is, is two things really. One is that your willingness to um, to really embrace incarnation at the kind of grossest level and then at the same time reflect kind of this this incredible dimensionality. So you seem to be a kind of expert in states, state experiences. But in terms of structures, you're also kind of describing to us an evolutionary path that we're actually moving and that maybe the collective is a little mired down in the in the uh, rational material and driving that into the ground. But as we move, we find at second-tier level of consciousness that all these preceding levels come online. And so in your work, there's bound to be shamanic initiation. And, and I'm curious about, you know, your art innately contains ritual and it innately has an instinct for the shamanic. And I've heard Don Beck say that at second-tier consciousness, the shamanic will come back online and that that looks like that's already happening you know, in your work. And I'm wondering what your relationship between your non-dual realization that all of consciousness, all of manifestation is light, including pop art, you know, in a certain way with a Buddhist realization of emptiness, Andy Warhol's soup can is pristine as anything else. Right. But, but ha- so what's the relationship for you between non-dual realization and shamanic work to support to support more people in in moving forward, if you will? Forward's not a good word, but but reintegrating <laughs> the shamanic, I guess you might say. Yeah. Well, I think that the you have to lay out all those uh, different realms, and you mm-hmm. you did it pretty nicely. I'm still struggling as an artist to, you know, fill in the blanks. You know, you've got the uh, sense of of the splendor of every moment of now as it arises um, to deal with as an expression. But then you've also got the element of your limitations. That's kind of the boundless and, you know, identity at the highest levels, Mm -hmm. uh, the non-dual perception. But then down in the street, you know, you don't want to necessarily say, I am the bus, the bus is me, and, and not <laughs> a, a, avoid, uh, you know. The not bus. helpful, not helpful. Yeah, so so negotiating the, the different levels, and, you know, yes, we have a, a layout of the spectrum of consciousness that is, we know that once you're there, and that's, that's kind of the background reality of everything, you're always in the transcendental ground of being. But you're also, there's an element of the, the moving self uh, that is the manifester and the, the uh, creator on the, on the ground who's going to get this painting done, you know. Right. Not my, not my satisfied, you know. <laughs> Buddha. That every everything is fine just the way just that it is. The way it is. Yeah, it's not going to do it. Right. So um, it's more the bodhisattvic being that is, you know, perceiving as beautiful and uniquely perfect and as the situation is now. Also, beings are suffering. Also, I'm suffering. It could get better. Not it. It maybe it could. So let's it give it a shot, better. you know. And so you you take your bodhisattvic uh, arrow and you aim as as high as you can with whatever you've got. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's you know that that really, I mean, and that really brings us you know as as we move towards close our bodhisattvic arrow and, and the shamanic, you know, and and anyone who would like to really read about 
really, you know, and Alex, I apologize for with you on the phone talking about you in the third person again, but Carla McCormick wrote really a beautiful essay about um, really about Alex's work as shamanic work. And Alex, I think you said in the introduction, you, you paid him a very high and beautiful compliment, which is you thanked him for the joy of being understood. And so that's a really, that's a really wonderful essay. And, and the shamanic really brings us back to, you know, to our beginning. And as the, the book of creation, the oldest Hebrew mystical book says, you know, the end is in the beginning and the beginning is in the end. You know, the integral spiritual experience really looks to and, and aspires, you know, and a man's reach should you know, exceed his grasp or what's a heaven for. You know, we aspire to be, we want to be, we're looking for a shamanic event. And our invitation to people coming is, you know, hey, you've, you've had such a good life. You've been moving competently through your life. But beyond competence and beyond even the void, there's this unique self and the unique self, you know, contains within it, you know, Alex, your phrase, the kernel of service. You know, and I would add the kernel of service that we all desperately need, that you, whoever you are who's listening, has, that hasn't been realized yet, that we need, that God needs. You know, the, the old Hebrew mystical text, Ibn Gabay in the 16th century, Avodat Zorach Gavoa, you know, God needs our service. You know, God needs, God would be poorer, God as all that is, if, it, if Alex Gray's art wasn't in the world. And if Alex and Allison's unique soul-printed encounter didn't happen, something would be profoundly, you know, missing in the world. And that's the, that's the invitation of the whole thing. And so, Alex, I want to I finish with extending to you an invitation, right, which, uh, you know, that's unfair to do, I completely admit, you know, because we're on a recorded call, but what the heck, I'm going to do it anyways, which is we would be, you know, completely delighted either at this coming integral spiritual experience, or if you're already scheduled at the next one, which is a year from then, you know, they're always on New Year's, to really come and really have a, a full, you know, display. We'll work out how to do it and all the, the finances, you know, to really have a gorgeous display of your art that people can actually, as they do the Dharma sessions, or, or really an just, event, or an event. He's really good at performance and events, too. Fantastic. So, just, you know, either this one or the next one, but we, we can't do integral spiritual experience, you know, whether it's this year or the following year without you and Allison, and we would be just so delighted to have you. We'll find you offline to see how that might work, but, but we'd love to put you on the spot and get a yes now. <laughs> um, you have a yes, a permanent yes. If you want me, I, I'm there. I'm Everyone, you heard a yes here. So we're going to see Alex Gray and Allison, we hope, we hope, we hope, we hope, at, at Integral Spiritual Experience. And just died to thank you for just a, a delightful, delightful call. Alex, just to really thank you very much, not just for this call, but for, you know, for your entire life's work, which has just uh, you know, opened our hearts in a way that, in a unique way, in a unique way that they wouldn't have been opened otherwise. Yeah. So thank and you. also just just to, just his radical willingness to place himself fully in relationship to his experience, both internal and external, and what that models for the people in our community. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you, and Mark. Thank you. You radically wild, loving, profound being. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bless. Thank you both. Thank you. Shalom. Shalom. Shalom.